All right, Ephesians chapter 3. We've been learning about how to walk in the riches of His grace. That is the theme of the book of Ephesians. And as we've been moving through these blessings, the riches that we have in Christ, we learned in chapter 2 that one of those blessings that we have in Christ is that every believer is a part of God's family. And therefore, every believer has a necessary and important role in expanding God's kingdom on earth. And so Paul, when he starts chapter 3, he begins by explaining what his role is in that endeavor of expanding God's kingdom on earth. And now in sharing the importance of, of his assignment from God, a job that he says was worth going to prison for, in sharing the importance of that job, that assignment from God, Paul urges those in Ephesus to not be disheartened from doing their job assignment from God. And so my hope this morning is that we would be encouraged by that and not let anything discourage us from doing our job assignment from God too. So chapter 3, I'm going to read and kind of sum up, and then we'll pick it up in the middle of verse 8 where we left off last week. So chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, "'For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles,' And then he interrupts himself. He originally plans to go to verse 14, for this cause I bow my knees unto the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he's, in verse 14, he begins to share a prayer that he would pray regularly for the Ephesian believers. It's a great prayer. We're not going to get to it today. Because in verse 1, Paul interrupts that thought because he feels the need to explain his job, because he doesn't want his imprisonment to dishearten the Ephesian Christians. So when he brings up, for this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, he doesn't say, bow the knee, pray, but instead he says, I assume you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me toward you, how that by revelation, he, God, made known unto me, Paul, the mystery, as I wrote before in a few words, everything we learned in chapter 2, the mystery of the church, whereby when you read chapter 2, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. He, he explains, I had a special job from God. Just like God has given you an assignment in the body of Christ, I have an assignment. And part of my assignment was to receive this revelation from God. And so he explains now, verse 5, this mystery of Christ, this revelation of Christ, which in other ages, in the Old Testament, it was not made known unto the sons of men. But it is now revealed, now in the New Testament, unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And what is that mystery? Well, one part of the mystery of Christ is this, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ by the gospel. That one of the revelations of the New Testament is that God was going to create this entity through Christ called the church. And it didn't matter what background you came from, what racial background, ethnic background, socioeconomic background, we would all be in the family of God. We would all be fellow heirs, right? Fellow heirs, he says, and fellow members, same body, and fellow sharers, partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. And then Paul says, whereof that gospel, that ministry, I was made a minister. And then he says, why did God pick me? According to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Wasn't because I was so great. Wasn't because I earned the job. Wasn't because I was the best one for the job. It's because God's power works and God's grace is amazing. I didn't earn it. God gave it to me as a gift. He picked me. And then he explains unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given. 
I didn't earn it. God is just good. And His power works. He changed me. So that's where we left off last week. So He changed me. He did this in my life, verse 8, middle, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hidden God, who created all things by Christ Jesus. So here we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of Paul's job assignment from God. It has two parts to it. The first part is at the end of verse 8, where he says that I should preach amongst the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Something that's unsearchable, this word, it means something that's impossible to fully understand, something that's unfathomable. Like there are things sometimes that you could just never fathom. Maybe someone else might be able to, but you couldn't. And what Paul's explaining here is that part of his job for assignment from God was to share, to preach, to announce to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches, all the blessings that are, we can't fully comprehend that God has given to us through Christ. You and I can never plumb the depths of God's grace in such a way that we could say, I figured it out. I know exactly how gracious God is. No matter how much you have learned, whether it's from the Scripture or from your own life experience, there will always be more that you haven't figured out. There will always be more blessings, always more grace that God is lavishing upon you. The quality of the riches that we have in Jesus, it just keeps getting better and better and better the more we learn. I don't know what your experience was before you you know, maybe understood the grace of God. I, I got saved at Calvary Assembly just around the corner. I think it's called Calvary Orlando now, but I got saved there as a big church environment. My family wanted a smaller church environment, and, and so I started going to a little tiny church in, in Lake Mary, and, um, and it was a great church. But like most of us, I know maybe everybody doesn't struggle with this, I had a legalistic mindset toward God. This idea that, like, I've got to be good enough. I've got, I, I can't pray unless, unless I've been good enough to pray, or I can't read my Bible unless I've been good enough to read my Bible. I can't, you know, serve the Lord unless I've been good enough to serve the Lord. And I was always kind of on that works treadmill, always trying to relate to God in a legal way. Okay, God, I can do this because I haven't messed up yet today. <laughs> and, of course, where does that lead you to? It leads you away from the Lord because we're never, that's the whole reason Jesus had to come and die. None of us are ever going to be good enough. It's not about us being good enough. It's about what he did for the fact that we're not good enough, that he died for our sins on the cross. It's about his work inside of us changing us, not us outwardly trying to conform to something and make ourselves good enough for God. So I struggled with that big time. And so I remember going off to college, and one of the first courses I took was on the book of Ephesians. And it changed everything. But maybe you've had this experience as we've gone through Ephesians. Maybe as you've been hearing about these blessings after blessing after blessing and grace after grace after grace, unearned gift from God that he says, it's yours, it's yours, it's yours, that it's hard to believe it's true. And that was kind of my experience at, at school as I would hear these things and I would go, but that, that can't be for me. Maybe for somebody else, but it can't be for me. What do you do when, when you relate to God in a legal way and God's trying to fix that? 
for me, the only answer was just to jump in, just to take that leap and just go, all right, if this is true, then I, I don't know anywhere else to try to justify it somehow. I can't make myself worthy of it. I can't somehow justify that I'm, I deserve it. I guess, I guess I just jump in. And we would have this song that we would sing. The song was called Good to Me. And we'd say, I cry out for your hand of mercy to heal me. I am weak and I need your love to free me. O Lord, my rock, my strength and weakness, come rescue me, O Lord, for you are my hope. And your promise never fails me. And my desire is to follow you forever. And we would sing that song so often, and I would just, in my mind, just that idea of just, Lord, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna just fall into your arms and trust that you're gonna catch me. I'm just gonna fall into grace. Because that's what you say. It was the only option I could do because it didn't make any sense up here. quality of the riches that we have in Christ just keep getting better and better and better the more we learn. That's why I love talking about grace. That's why Ephesians is so cool to study. So you learn of just God's goodness towards us and it's like this is yours. If you've repented of your sins and put your trust in Jesus, it's yours. And the first part of Paul's job assignment from God was to announce that awesome news of God's grace to the Gentiles. Because like me, they didn't understand that, okay? Their experience with, with their deities, with their, with their worship, with their religion, whatever you want to call it, was, well, well Dionysius, you know, he, he requires me to bring this offering or do this thing or live this way, and, and then he'll bless my crops or my finances or whatever it might be that you were going to that deity for. And so somehow you had to earn his favor, bring him a, a good enough fruit basket and put it down beside the little tiki thing, and, and then everything would be good. And then when things went bad, what, what would you say to yourself? Well, I guess my, I need to bring more fruit next time. Maybe I need to get more expensive fruit next time. What I did wasn't good enough for God, my God. That's the only way they understood relating to a deity. They had no concept of this idea that where the Lord just says, well, I just want to bless you. Well, what do I have to do to get that? Well, nothing, I already did it. My son died on the cross for you and you receive that, then I just want to bless you. I want to make you my child. I want to bless you. They had never heard that before. And so the first part of Paul's job assignment from God was to announce that great news of the riches of his grace to these Gentiles so they could begin the journey of learning about that grace and then stay on that path for all their days. The second part of Paul's job assignment from God is in verse 9. He says, and... To make all men see. To, the phrase to make see, it means to bring to light or to make plain or clear. It's to make all men understand, to bring to light, to make it clear or plain to them what is the fellowship of the mystery. Now, what's the mystery? Well, we already talked about it. It's the church, right? That's the whole context here of this new thing that God created where Jews and Gentiles are equal members, right? That's the mystery, so the fellowship, it means the close association that we have in this mystery. I mean, think about it. We, we talked about it last week. We all come from all different backgrounds this morning. We come from a different socioeconomic status, different job status, different experience in life, different cultures. And yet here we all are, and we've been brought in this close association called the body of Christ, the family of God. 
Some of you might be wondering, it's a little bit too close for me. It's okay. Us introverts will survive. The word fellowship there, it's, it's an interesting word. It's koinonia in the Greek and the original language of the New Testament. And it, it, means, it means to share life together. It means, but it's more than just like outwardly. It's, this, it's something precious, something intimate, something close. Um, it's a partnership, but closer than that. It's not just that we do the same things or we have the same goal, but like we share it together and we, we like it that way. Someone described it once to me as having like precious faith with someone else. We've been brought into that. No matter what our other backgrounds are, our interests are, we all share this. And so he wanted his job, part two of his job assignment for God was to make that clear to the Jews and Gentiles. Now, this mystery, he explains, which from the beginning of the world had been hidden God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Uh, it was kept a secret. We'll see the significance of that statement when we get to verse 10, but for right now, it, just, it was kept a secret by God. He hadn't revealed that. That's why it's a mystery that's not revealed until the New Testament. You can see pictures of the church in the Old Testament, but it wasn't clearly explained. But then it makes this little comment at the end. It was hid in God when? Well, back in creation. And then he explains who created all things by Jesus Christ. Jesus was in on the plan. He was in on the plan. The Father was in on the plan because they were involved in creation, including the creation of the church. Jesus, it says here, created all things. That's emphatic in the original language. It means you need to, it's like bold or italics or underlined or flashing lights. John 1.3 says the same thing. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I love that because it's almost like John is writing going, listen, Jesus made everything. And just in case you don't understand what that means, right? All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Because he knew that someone would decide to write a Bible that said, all other things were made by him because I don't think Jesus is God. And so we have a whole cult spawn from that. Jesus is not a created being. He's an eternal being. And he partnered with the Father to create everything that has ever been created. And he and the Father planned from the beginning to create the church. Now, that was hidden before, but now that Jesus has died and risen again for us, the church is here. Here we are. Now, since part of his job assignment is to make it clear that Jews and Gentiles, whatever your background is racially, ethnically, culturally, whatever, that there's no first-class and second-class members in the church, period. None. We share the same position because we have the same precious faith. There are no priests that come between you and God. Jesus is our great high priest. It's all we need. So this was the second part of Paul's job assignment from God, to make clear that in the church, we all have the same standing. We're all one family. Now, these two parts of Paul's job assignment, they inform someone who's not a believer, someone who does, hasn't yet trusted Christ. They inform them how to get saved, right? How to become a believer. The riches of God's grace, the cross, and everything else. And they also inform 
those who have already done that, those who are believers, of their position in the church, right? But Paul says his job assignment also informs another group of people. I guess I shouldn't say people. Another group of entities. The angels. Look at verse 10. When he said it had been hid, he now explains that it was also hid from them. Look at verse 10. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God gave him this job assignment so unbelievers could understand the good news of the riches of God's grace, so that believers could know their position in the church, their position in Christ. But thirdly, so angels could learn. Now, what angels is he referring to? The principalities and powers, we already covered that earlier in chapter 1 of Ephesians. That's a reference to angelic beings. But it mentions here, it's not all angels, it's the angels who are in heavenly places. So these are the faithful angelic ranks. It's for the faithful angels to understand that they might be known to them through the church, through you and me, the manifold wisdom of God. Now, that means that God's plan for the church wasn't revealed to angels. They didn't know about it. They didn't learn about it until Jesus rose from the dead and created it. That's why sometimes when we we sing our Christian hymns or our Christian choruses. We sing, and it, it mentions the angels' amazed reactions to things like the cross and the resurrection and the church. Because through that amazement, through that, their experience of seeing these things happen, they learn something about God. They learn about, it says, the manifold wisdom of God. Manifold just means many-sided, many and diverse as they observe how Jesus is working in our lives, how we're all different, we go through different scenarios and situations, and yet God in his wisdom is able to work in all of our lives, their concept of God's wisdom just goes boom. It expands according to, verse 11, the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The eternal purpose just means God's plan of the ages the plan he he and Jesus came up with before creation. It's according to that, which he purposed. Purposed here actually means it's a different word. It means which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So they made the plan before creation, and then Jesus carried it out, and the angels went, whoa. And they still go, whoa. Look at that dude up there teaching Gabriel. Who would have thunk it? Not me. Let's take a poll. Any angels think God ever used that guy? Well, nope, I'm sure he was headed for hell. (laughs) Now, how does this fit into what Paul's trying to teach them here? I mean, is Paul just going, (laughs) yeah, you all peons have your job assignments from God and I get to teach angels. No, 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 that's not his point. His point is, it goes right with everything he's been saying. You and I can never say we aren't an important part of God's family because all of our lives are lessons for angels. All of our lives are lessons for angels. Listen, you're a professor at a university that only angels can attend. Your life is a course that only angels can sign up for. You say, how does that work? This is kind of one of those verses that the Bible just kind of drops on you and then just keeps going. Like, there's a little part of me that wonders if Paul's going, what's this? For 2,000 years, people are going to go, what's he talking about? 
because he doesn't explain it. But if we study what the rest of Scripture says about angels, we can maybe open the window just a little bit. What is Paul trying to say? Well, think about it. Angels cannot experience forgiveness, redemption. I mean, I realize TV shows like to talk about angels, bad angels getting redeemed and all this kind of stuff and falling in love. and what, No, this, don't think of that. Angels cannot experience forgiveness, redemption, restoration to God, mercy, sanctification, a change of life. They can't experience any of those things. They're either faithful or they're fallen. Their choice was irrevocable. They made it long ago, and it's irrevocable. There's no going back and forth. And so, the only way for them to learn about those things is by watching us. It's the only way. Remember that the next time you're struggling. Remember that angels are eagerly watching God's work in you. They're not eagerly watching you and what you're going to do. They're eagerly watching what God's going to do in your life while you're struggling. They're watching and going, how is he going to change this person? How is he going to fix that marriage? How is he going to, how is he going to grab hold of that kid's heart? How is he going to use that guy? I know what his call in his life is. I've seen God trying to call him to it. I've seen God trying to call her to it, and she keeps fighting him. How is he going to, how is he going to overcome that stubbornness? That's what they're watching. And when they watch God's work in you, I guarantee it's a work that seems just as impossible to them as you feel it is for you sometimes. But the point of Paul's statement here is they're not going to be disappointed. They're going to see so many sides of God's wisdom as they watch him finish what he starts in every kind of person. And that includes you. That includes you. So what's the point? The point is don't give up. Hang in there. That's where Paul's going to tie all this up now in verses 12 and 13. He says, don't give up. Hang in there. Remember who you have access to. Verse 12. In whom... Christ Jesus our Lord, that's the whom that was last referenced in verse 11. In Christ Jesus our Lord, we have boldness and access with confidence by our faith in Him. I know the King James says by the faith of Him. It's not through His faith. That's a bad translation. It means by faith in Him. Wherefore, I desire that you don't faint at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Paul exhorts him to hang in there, number one, because we have boldness and confidence as well as access. We learned all about our access in chapter 2 already, so I'm not going to go into that too much. But it's the idea that through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead, has ushered us into the Father's throne room with welcome arms. We are welcomed there. We're not pushed in and say, you got two minutes. Nobody wants you here, so get in, say what you need to do, and get out. No, we're ushered into the presence of our Heavenly Father. We have access. We already learned about that. But now it says we also have boldness. Now, boldness, the word here means unrestricted speech, the freedom to be frank. That's what it means, the freedom to be frank. There are certain people who would go to, like, you know, the president or the governor or whatever, and they don't have the freedom to be frank. And then there are others who probably do, right? Now, that's a, a kind of a formal way of looking at things. But let's think of it more, more intimate. I have a wife and six children. 
They have access to me and they have boldness with me that nobody else has. They have freedom to speak to me with unrestricted access. Other people don't, right? If you just come walking in my door and you want to talk to me, we're going to have a conversation, right? Because you need to be invited in first. None of my kids need to be invited in to come talk to their dad. Now, let me clarify. That doesn't give my kids freedom to mouth off at me. In Hebrews chapter 4, I believe, it says, let us come boldly, same word, with freedom to be frank, unrestricted speech, let us come boldly before his throne of grace. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, we must always remember that it's a throne of grace, but we must never forget that it's a throne. I don't get to mouth off at God. I don't get to, I remember, (laughs) I made a mistake as a young pastor still make mistakes as an older pastor, but I was really young in the ministry. We had a ministry group came into our area and they said, hey, we want to do a, an evangelistic outreach in your neighborhood. And I thought, well, that's awesome. Yeah, we'd love to partner with you in that. I had lunch with the guy and sounded great. And I thought, eh, said a couple weird things, but I think we're okay. You know, I think we're all right. And then I show up to the meeting, the outreach, and got a big stage in the, the field that's out there in front of our, our neighborhood area, our housing area, whatever you want to call it. And as I was getting up, I, I was supposed to get up and be like the fourth speaker or whatever. To, I was going to share the gospel. And, and this guy gets up and he starts commanding God. Now, there wasn't a cloud in the sky, but man, I was keeping my distance for the lightning that was coming. You know, it's like, bro. It does not say in whom and then define whom as Christ Jesus, my butler, or Christ Jesus, my servant, or Christ Jesus, you know, my little guy that I send scurrying out to do whatever I tell him to do. This is Christ Jesus, our Lord, our master. We come with respect. We come with that recognition that he's the Lord. But we come knowing we can talk to him about anything. The freedom to be frank. And we do so with confidence, it says. This access and this frankness that we can have, it's with confidence. The word there means perfect or complete confidence. In other words... We don't have to come in and make sure that our suit looks just perfect and everything is perfect and wonderful and we're going to do everything just as we're supposed to. No. Because we have trusted Christ. We aren't just invited into the Father's throne room. We are free to speak with complete confidence that he receives us and hears us even when we're there with our struggles. And see, that's the lie that the enemy tells you. It's a lie he told me. You can't go to God with this. You're a mess right now. That's the place you need to be when you're a mess. You need to go talk to your dad. This is where we pour out our heart, not just in worship. Yes, we do that. But we pour it out when we're confused. We pour it out in complaint. We pour it out in worry. So we we can find help and peace and strength and faith. So that we can then leave and go do the job that God has assigned us to do instead of giving in or giving up, right? He says, hang in there. You have boldness and confidence as well as access to the Father. And hang in there because what you do, what I do, is how God blesses others. Verse 13, wherefore, this is the whole point of the interruption, (laughs) 
The whole point. If you find a wherefore in the Bible, read before and find out why it's there. Find out what it's there for. Wherefore, why I took this detour is because I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. The word there, I desire, it's stronger than just something I want. It means I beg you, I plead with you, please don't give up. The word faint not, it means to become so discouraged that you give in or give up. It means to lose heart or to lose motivation. He says, don't do that. Please don't do that. When you, when you look at my tribulations for you, when you look at my trouble and you look at my suffering for you, please don't give up. Please don't think, well, I don't want to pay that price. If that's what happens for somebody who's faithful to God, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I don't want God to get me like that. Paul explained his job assignment from God in such detail. He explains he's not a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Jesus put me here, and I'm okay with that. It's a good thing. He explains it in such detail to them because he doesn't want them to get discouraged in doing their assignment because his assignment landed him in jail. Because he says it's for your glory. You guys are deriving spiritual benefits from my suffering, from my troubles. I'm okay with that. Please see my imprisonment like I see it. And do your part, no matter how much it costs you. That's his point. We read about that and we think, man, Paul's like, He's like Iron Man, like spiritual Iron Man. It's like, is this guy even human? Well, it's not the full story what he's saying here. We go back in the book of Acts, and we read about a little bit last week how he landed in prison. You know, he went to Jerusalem, and his thought mindset is, you know, I'm going to go worship at the feast, and God's telling me, he's warning me, I'm going to be imprisoned. He goes, but I, I don't think it's going to work out like that. Like, I'm going to go, and I'm going I'm to, I, I get these guys. Like, I'm one of them. I know their hang-ups. I know the reasons they don't believe. And I, I, I can reason with them. I can explain it to them. And so when he goes into the temple and he's minding his own business, not doing anything wrong, and a riot starts, and they try to kill him, and the captain comes down to save him, rescue him from his own people who are beating him to death, he, he starts taking him up to the fortress, and he goes, what did you do? Why are they trying to kill you? And he goes, let me talk to him. I can fix this. Famous last words. And then Paul turns to them and he starts to, all the rioters there are trying to kill him. And he starts speaking to them in their own language, in Hebrew. So the Roman captain, he doesn't know what Paul's saying, but Paul starts speaking. But as the captain's watching, he's probably thinking, I, th I think everything's going to be okay. Because Paul's explaining the gospel and everything and his, his past and how he gets their problems and their hangups, and it's going great. Until he says one word. And God has called me to go preach that, all this awesome news to the Gentiles. Soon as they get the word Gentiles out, what happens? Ah, rocks, you know, dust and ashes, you know, away with this man, kill him. Right? And so, while they're trying to get past Roman soldiers to kill Paul again, the captain's like, what did you do now? 
And so he has him dragged up into the fortress. He says, scourge that man to find out what he's doing. Because that's how they would elicit confessions back then. That's what scourging was for. We'll whip you until you tell us what you did. Flay you alive if we have to, if you won't say it. So as they're tying Paul to the post, ready to flay his skin off, he finally says, I'm a Roman citizen. Is it okay to scourge a Roman citizen? Which it's not allowed. A rare thing for a Jewish man to be a Roman citizen. So they go tell the captain, he says he's a Roman citizen. The captain's like, what are we going to do now? Just throw him in jail. I don't know what to do now. And then Paul gets word of a, a plot that 25 of those rioters they make a, a pact with themselves. They swear an oath. We're not going to eat until Paul's dead. And so they're plotting to assassinate Paul while he's having him moved to the, to the Roman governor in the area, to his residence. And so Paul shares this with him. He goes, listen, this is what I've heard is going down. And so the captain has Paul taken out in the middle of the night, and he's up there. I think Felix or Festus, one of the two guys, was governors at the time. And, and for two years, Paul's just sitting under house arrest in, a, in, in Caesarea. And when he gets there, and he's just sitting there, and he can't do anything, the Bible tells us that he was so down. What was I thinking? God warned me not to do this. He told me not to do this. And look at what I did. I made a mess of everything, and now I'm stuck. I failed. I blew it. You see, his first view of his incarceration was not, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. It was, Paul, you messed up again. And that's when the Lord comes to him and he says, cheer up, Paul. I'm not done with you yet. You're going to go to Rome. Paul's like, Rome? All right. You still use me? You still got a plan for me? Yep, this is all part of the plan, Paul. I'm going to send you to Rome. In shackles, but you're going to Rome. <laughs> and I'm going to use you there. And from that moment forward, Paul was okay with it. And so he could say, I don't want you to be discouraged when you look at my imprisonment. I am not a prisoner of Rome. I'm not even a prisoner because I just get things wrong sometimes. I'm here because Jesus put me here. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. You guys derive spiritual benefits from my troubles. Look at it like I do. Because God wants to use you too. And sometimes it might look like this, and that's not a bad thing. I bring this up because frequently in our lives, well, I've heard something frequently. I've said, repeated the words sometimes. Haven't for many years. But you ever heard the phrase, don't ask God for patience because he'll give it to you? <laughs> and I know people are well-meaning in the sense that they explain, well, how are you going to learn patience unless God puts you in a situation that requires patience, right? But I remember I heard a pastor once say, when you say that, though, it implies that God isn't good when he's trying to teach you to be patient, that somehow he's going to put you in a situation that's not good for you. And I remember when I heard that, I was like, huh. I don't want to do that because I do believe that my father loves me. I do believe that he's good. And that means every good and perfect gift comes from him. Like I can't look at something and go, well, that's not a good and perfect gift. I mean, it came from God, but pff, stinks. 
when we have that mindset, we hold back because we say, I don't want you to do that in my life, God. And so we fail sometimes to either accomplish our job, job assignment or jump into our job assignment or to fully commit ourselves to our job assignment from God in the body of Christ. Have you ever seen someone or known someone who really loved Jesus and man, they went through the ringer? And sometimes when we see that, it can cause us to kind of go, well, I'm not gonna give you my kids, God. I don't want what happened to them happened to me. I'm not gonna trust you with, with everything, my, all my finances and all my career and, and all my life. I'm not gonna trust you with that because if I do that, it might happen to me what happened to them. The problem is when we say that is we go, well, God, you're not good and what you have isn't good for me. I know that there are times when God's asked me to surrender things to him and I, I will struggle with that. I have to remind myself that God is good and he loves me. The Bible says he withhold no good thing from me. And so if God is saying, no, I don't want this path for you, I want this path for you, then this path is not good for me, no matter how good I think it might be for me. I'm try to be, explain this, so if I fail, come and talk to me. I was laying down, I don't know if it was last night or the night before, and I'm just fathoming the idea of what it like, it's like to live in a war-torn place. I don't go to bed at night worrying that I might wake up in the middle of the night, my house is gone, and I'm trying to dig for my kids. I don't worry about it. I don't think about that. We don't experience that. My whole life growing up has never been one of fear like that. I don't live in fear of those types of things happening. You know, our nation, our, our climate here is, is very stable. It's very peaceful. But the thing that I think, while that's a great thing, and I'm so thankful for it, and I hope it stays that way, I think sometimes, though, because of all the freedom and, and benefit and peace that we have, I do wonder if it gives us a wrong idea of what it means to follow Jesus. And what I mean by that is not that we don't want those things, but, or it's bad to want those things, but I think sometimes maybe we can get the idea in our minds that, well, we deserve those things. Like God owes me those things. And when God doesn't give me those things, I'm really mad. And I'm not gonna follow him and I'm not gonna surrender to him. And so I think sometimes because of how easy things are and how, how, how wonderful things are, we get our idea that that's Christianity in and of itself. Not, I'm not saying that, that, that God doesn't want us to strive for peace. That's not my point. But that, the idea that that's Christianity, that, that things should always be easy and never hard and never suffer and never sacrifice. I don't see that in the Bible. I don't think that's a biblical idea to have that mentality, that God would never call me to suffer, that God would never call me to sacrifice. And, and that somehow suffering or sacrifice is a horrible thing. I don't think that's a biblical idea. And so I wonder sometimes if because we, we get that idea that following Jesus means everything will just go well and easy, that when the Lord calls us to step out and trust him for our assigned job, 
that we do what Paul's desiring them not to do. We lose heart or we give in or we give up or we just don't even start. And so in, in light of how we are going to think of this morning, how Jesus left a perfect situation in heaven with no problems, no issues, you know, no struggle, no sacrifice, no suffering, how he left that to come here to do his job assignment to rescue us. My hope is that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, as the team comes up to lead us in song, as we, as we sing a song that reminds us of the cross, you know, as we, as we meditate on what Jesus did for us, I, I guess my encouragement, my hope would be is that maybe some of you today who have held back or maybe never taken the start to do what God's called you to do, or maybe you've lost heart, you've given up, that maybe we'll all leave here today just saying, all to Jesus I surrender. I know you're good and I know you love me and I'm okay with being a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Lord, we give this time of meditation and thought to you now. To, to, and when I say meditation, of course, Lord, I just think chewing on something, just thinking about it. Lord, we want to think about the fact and ponder the fact, remember the fact that you left a perfect place where there was nothing ill going on. There was no suffering, no sacrifice, and then you stepped out of that place into our muck and our mire, and then you walked not only just in our midst, but then you died for our sins. You were willing to go through all that to fulfill the task that you took on and that the Father assigned you to. You were the perfect man, and you fulfilled that task for the joy that was set before you. Lord, you endured the cross and despised the shame associated with it because there was a, a joy of what you were accomplishing for us, a joy of winning us. Lord, as we ponder that and we remember that, Lord, we want to be those who are yielded to you and say, Lord, I will follow you on that path. In Jesus' name, amen.